Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, this is my first time at the South Service, so uh, yeah, it's really, really fantastic to be here. I uh, hope you are enjoying the bank holiday so far. Unfortunately, the weather looks like it's turned a little bit today, but hopefully we'll have a good day tomorrow. Um, I'm aware that lots of you probably won't know who I am, probably never met me before, so I thought I'd better start with a little bit about uh, me. So I've been in London for around about five years or so now. Um, I'm a civil servant. Uh, for most of the time I've been in London, I've been part of Christchurch. Uh, me and my wife Helen are involved in the West End service, and we help to lead a connect group there, the Covent Garden Connect Group, which is absolutely brilliant, although we are hugely biased, obviously. Um, but I'm hoping as well throughout this morning, you will get to know me a little bit more, and hopefully it become clear exactly why. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Summer of Love, and what we're doing is exploring the letter of 1 John, and particularly exploring what John has to say about the small topic of love. And if you haven't been here for the previous couple of weeks, we've looked at some topics such as eternal life. We've looked at what John has to say about living in love and how we love one another. And this week, we're going to unpack some of what John says about when we commit to God, how we increasingly resemble him. Uh, a few weeks ago, Helen and I were on holiday. Uh, we went down to Cornwall for a couple of weeks, and it was absolutely brilliant. We had a really, really good time, really enjoying kind of time away from the busyness of London life and relaxing. Uh, that was until one evening when we were on holiday. We went out for dinner and um, it wasn't really a romantic dinner because halfway through the, the dinner, Helen looked across the table at me, not with a lovingly look. It was kind of a really concerning look over the table and she leaned across and she was like, darling, I'm really afraid to tell you this, but I've just seen a grey hair. Now, I was absolutely horrified. I'm 28. We've only been married for 10 months, so things can't be going well, clearly. But anyway, I just about got over that. A couple of days later, we uh, went to visit my grandparents, who live in Wales. And uh, we hadn't seen them for a long time, so this was a really, real privilege for me to, to catch up with them and to, to see them. And we were having dinner. And um, again, over the dinner table, this time my grandma kind of looking at my hair. I'm thinking, oh, no, not again. Here we go. And she turns to me. She says, oh, Mark, I see your hair is beginning to recede. You'll soon be just like your dad. <sighs> you have got to be joking me. Here is a picture of my mum and my dad. So I don't know whether you think I look like him. Hopefully, my hair isn't going to recede that quickly that I'll end up like that. I know Helen's pretty worried about that, but uh, there we are. But anyway, I found out a couple of days later, I'm due to speaking on family resemblance. So uh, plenty of material for this talk, obviously. But I'm sure, like me, you've been compared to one of your parents, perhaps someone else in your family. It is absolutely inevitable that we will look like and act like those who are in our family. And in this passage this morning, we're going to explore what John writes about our resemblance. And John's suggesting that it actually goes beyond physically, just what we look like and how we act like. John says it's, it matters to our spiritual lives as well. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to um, turn to uh, 1 John 2, we're going to read from 28 and then into 3, uh, down to verse 10. If you haven't, hopefully it'll be on the screen behind me. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when we know, when we, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is, what is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The, one reason, the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go, go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. You'll notice there's some quite tough stuff in there, tough enough for me to read. Um, but John pretty much gets straight to the point. And actually, the reason that John is writing this letter in the first place is to address various churches at the time who with Christians who were living quite hypocritical lives. In other words, they, they believed in Jesus and they had faith, but their lives weren't really resembling that. But what is clear from this is actually who we resemble really matters. John wants to make it really clear for us as Christians exactly what we should look like and how we should act when we're born again, that moment when we choose to accept Jesus and become children of God. And whether you're here today and you might have been a Christian for a long time, or perhaps you're here and exploring some questions of faith, then my hope is today I'll be able to help you unpack some of what John is saying here, some of the key points, and explore what it means for us today, wherever you may be on that journey of faith. So what does it mean to be a child of God? And perhaps more importantly, what does John say about the process that goes on in, in how we increasingly resemble him? Well, I want to suggest it first starts with God changing how we think, our perspective, Perspective is the lens in which we see the world through. It's how we perceive what's going on in our lives and the world around us. It's, how we, it's what we use to bring meaning. It's how we form opinions, how we make judgments. It's absolutely key. Stephen Covey, who's a, an author of a number of leadership books, he says that we must look at the lens through we see the world as well as the world we see and that the lens itself shapes how we inter interpret the world. And when we're born again, the Holy Spirit begins to come and change us. But that has to start with us changing our perspective. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not conform to the pattern in this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And Paul is saying it all begins with a transformation of our minds. Allowing our perspective to be aligned with God. And from that, we're able to more clearly see what is of God and what's, of, what's not. And in this passage, I think John is perhaps in some quite subtle ways, reminding us and encouraging us to take on God's perspective. He says, firstly, that 
God's perspective is loving. It's all about love. We know from elsewhere in this letter, the beginning of the letter, John writes that God is love. Love isn't simply an attribute of God. God himself is perfect love. It's his entire essence and his entire being. And in this passage, John encourages us to see what great love the Father has lavished on us. He wants us to take it in for ourselves, to remind ourselves of just how much God loves us. And in that sentence, you'll see the phrase, what great. Now, in the original translation, it kind of means something like, of what country? And it's almost as if John is saying, where is this love coming from? It's so unearthly, so supernatural. We, we can't really take it in for ourselves. But not only that, John writes that God has lavished his love upon us. It doesn't mince his words. God doesn't just show us or tell us how much he loves us. He actually demonstrates it by calling us to be sons and daughters. You see, we are created in love, by love, and for love. God's greatest act was as a result of love, that he chose to send his only son, Jesus, in our place and to make us perfect in God's sight. And what God has done and what God continues to do and will do is all from that perfect perspective of love. One of the best pictures we have of God the Father loving us is in the the parable of the prodigal son, which Jesus told. And if you don't know the story, then it's a story about a father who allows his son to go and to take the inheritance from his father and to take all this money and go and live his own way. But in that story, the father never stops looking for his son. He never stops longing. He never stops waiting for him to come back. And the moment when the son comes back to him, the father runs to him and greets him. He never stops loving. And that is God's perspective. God's perspective is also eternal. You know, our theme of John's writing, particularly in this letter, is about eternal life, which he explains is available to those who've accepted Jesus as their personal saviour. In some ways, I think this is probably one of the hardest concepts to try and get our head around. Certainly, it's my simple brain. You know, the Bible describes God as being outside of our human concept of time, yet deeply involved in it. And we know that God himself is eternal. It's a difficult thing for us to get our heads around. So how do we take on this eternal perspective? Well, in this passage, John twice mentions the day when Christ appears. He's referring to a time when Jesus will return to judge the world and be a time when God will restore everything and make everything good and establish a completely perfect world. And in fact, from this passage, we also learn that it'll be a time when we are made perfect like Jesus So we're reminded that there's something far, far better coming than we can even imagine or that we have now. A realisation of God's perfect eternal existence. If you heard Liam's talk from two weeks ago, he explained that earlier in this letter, in fact, Jesus also himself is described as eternal life. So if we choose to follow Jesus, then we can not only look forward to eternity and look forward to that place where it's going to be far, far better but we can enjoy life in all its fullness right now. And although we might find it difficult, I certainly do, to think about that eternal perspective, the fact that God is outside of our concept of time, we can begin to understand it through the person of Jesus, who gives us a taste of that eternal perspective right now. John also indicates that God's perspective is good. We learn that God is righteous, he is pure, he is without sin. And so... This means that everything God does 
is from that perfect perspective. Every attribute, every action. He's a God who's compassionate, faithful, gentle, generous, just, humble, loyal, merciful, wise. We could go on. But it's out of that perspective that God views our human behavior, our thoughts and our actions. And unfortunately, we aren't perfect. We're always going to fall short of God's standard of righteousness. But it's also at the same perspective of love and goodness that God said, I'm going to send my son who was without sin to be sin for us so that we could be made righteous in the eyes of God. And although we will always fall short of that standard, it doesn't mean we should disregard it and not live our lives in view of that. Actually, I think John is encouraging us, live our lives in full view of that. And finally, God's perspective is revolutionary. What I'm referring to is this slightly curious verse where John writes that the world does not know us and it's because the world did not know him. Seems like a a strange add-on in the middle of this passage, something that doesn't quite fit. And I think, though, that it actually tells us an awful lot about God's perspective. Let me give you an illustration which hopefully might help. You might have heard of a guy called uh, Nicholas Copernicus. He was an astronomer. Uh, was around a while ago. He started a complete transformation in how we view the world and the universe. And before Copernicus, the world believed in a, a geocentric model of the universe, which was basically that the Earth was at the centre of everything and everything else revolved around the Earth, so the sun, all the other planets. And that was the worldview at the time. But Copernicus came along and in 1543 published a work that transformed absolutely everything that people held to be true. Because he proposed that actually it should be a different model completely. He said that, actually, it's the earth that's at the centre. It's the sun sun that's at the centre, even. And it's the earth. I can't even get my head around it. And it's the earth that orbits that and all the other planets. Copernicus basically said, you've been looking at this the wrong way. If you allow your perspective to change, then you'll see the way things actually should be. And at the time, Copernicus was pretty much ridiculed. That idea wasn't taken on for a long time afterwards. And it's simply because it was so different to what the world believed at the time. But, you know, I think there are a lot of similarities between Copernicus and the the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth and brought a completely fresh perspective, a completely new way of seeing things. Jesus said, you've been seeing this all wrong. He said that, for example, you should love your enemies, not just tolerate them or even worse, hate them. He said that actually the only way to know God was through him. He hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors, some of the people who were amongst the lowest ranks of society. And he said, actually, it is those people, the poor, the humble, the meek, they are the ones who will be part of God's kingdom. It's a completely new and radical perspective that Jesus brought. And like Copernicus, Jesus' perspective wasn't accepted by the vast majority of the time. We know that. John even writes here, the world did not know him. It didn't recognise him. didn't recognise this view. At the time, we know he was mocked and eventually crucified for what he said. But it's when we begin to understand this fresh perspective and we begin thinking like Jesus, then it lays the foundation in our lives for a whole turnaround And we understand why Jesus said the things he did. 
we begin to see the world through how God sees it. You see, God chooses to reveal this perfect perspective to us through the person of Jesus. And so if we are to develop God's perspective, it all begins by us saying yes to Jesus. I wonder whether you have truly let Jesus revolutionise your perspective. Have we truly let the Holy Spirit transform our minds as the Apostle Paul wrote? But it's only when we begin to develop God's perspective that actually we develop his character. You know, how we act, what we say, what we do are directly linked to how we think. Gandhi famously said, a man is but a product of his thoughts. What he thinks, he becomes. And what we think and how we think is really important. It's the thing that affects our actions. So we should be encouraged to allow that revolutionary perspective to transform our actions and how we live. You know, in this passage, John is encouraging us that actually the way we are to live as God's children is to be full of his character. So just as God's perspective is loving, then we are called to be full of love. First, that we have to experience that love that God has lavished on us, the love that enables him to call us sons and daughters. And when we're secure in that, when we know it to be true, then we can begin to love from God's perspective. You know, John writes in 1 John 4, he said, we love because he first loved us. It all starts from experiencing that for ourselves, the transforming power of the love of God. And John goes on to write that, actually, if we don't love our brothers and sisters, so those in our circles, then we've not really experienced God's love for ourselves. And we don't live with that perspective of love. So out of the love that we receive from God, we are called to love our others in our circles, our brothers and sisters. What does this look like? Well, it's not some fluffy or woolly concept. Um, we can very practically demonstrate God's love right now. We have to look no further than the most, probably the most famous passage in the Bible. Actually, it was read out in last week's talk as well, which is 1 Corinthians 13. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and it's probably the most practical application of God's love you will ever find anywhere in the Bible. It says that love displays patience, love displays kindness, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's humble. Love is always putting the other person first, displays peace, it's not a record of failure. Love displays trust and perseverance. You know, if we were truly to demonstrate that love for, our, for others, for our brothers and our sisters, in our communities. Can you imagine what our communities would look like? In 2014, there was a social experiment uh, conducted in Manchester. It was designed by an anthropologist, Kate Fox. And the reasoning for the experiment was that uh, there was research which showed that one in 10 of us uh, couldn't, in the UK, couldn't even name a single one of our neighbors. Isn't that really sad? And one in five of us couldn't even actually name the person who lives next door to us. And so for one month, five people on this one street, five households on this one street, were under strict instructions that whenever they saw somebody else, they had to smile at them. And they had to try and offer to do anything they could for them, try and help them. Uh, or they were just to try and strike up a conversation. And being very British about it, apparently this took a while to get off the ground. Uh, people were a little bit, this is weird, people are smiling at me, people are just asking me random questions in the street. 
but soon after the results were quite remarkable. Even before the end of the official experiment, every household on the street knew the names of everybody else. But not only that, some residents had said that now they actively had offered to help more elderly residents on the street with some of the chores that they had to do. Some had said that they'd held celebrations for birthdays and they'd celebrated the birth of a new baby. And probably the most British thing of all, it's my favourite thing of all, someone had started a bin rotor on the street. It's a small gestures. And the lead researcher, Kate Fox, said, even the very small gestures, just saying hello, can have a significant positive effect on community. And this experiment was done with the smallest of small gestures, saying hello, asking someone how they are. So how much more can our communities flourish if we are to really be full of love and demonstrate that practical love to those around us? I think it's also important because there's a warning in this passage from John. He says that actually it's possible for us to be led astray by others. So it's important to build community, but what John is saying as well is that it's important who we surround ourselves with. And depending on who we surround ourselves with, it's possible for, for us to be taken off track, to lose sight of God's perspective of love. Therefore, we, we're reminded to seek those loving, encouraging, accountable communities. And if you're here exploring faith, or you may be relatively new to the South Service or the whole church thing, then I'd really encourage you to get involved in a midweek connect group. They are absolutely brilliant ways of surrounding yourself with people who are committed to demonstrating that practical love. But we're not only encouraged to surround ourselves with other Christians. I think if we were to do that, we'd probably be misunderstanding what John is saying here. We're called to demonstrate God's love to those in our circles who have yet to experience what God's love is all about. We are called to be the difference in our communities. We're called to revolutionise our communities with God's love. So we're called to be full of love, but we're also called to be full of life. You see, when we grasp some of God's eternal perspective, then we begin to understand that when we die, it's, it's not the end of the story. But if we don't see that and we don't grasp that perspective, then what happens is we can only see through our human eyes, which are always so short-sighted, aren't they? And we end up placing all of our importance on our lives right now. So, for example, our achievements... And our results and our success take on that added importance. We focus on what makes us happy and like desperately try to avoid what is going to upset us or what's going to hurt us. And we end up living for the temporary highs that we know can fill that gap right now. But that always leads to disappointment. Because quite simply, someone else will always be more successful. Someone, always, someone else will always seem as if they've got more or be happier. And we can never get enough of those temporary highs. They're not the long-term solution. But actually, when we allow the Holy Spirit to reveal some of God's eternal perspective to us, then we begin to understand there's more to life than just what we can achieve or just how successful we are. The perspective of eternity also helps us to look further than our own circumstances right now, our own problems, we have a hope of something far, far better to come. And so when we have that perspective, we focus on 
what is lasting and not just what is temporary. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he encourages us to fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is temporary, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, this can sound quite woolly. And one argument you'll perhaps often have heard leveled at Christians is that they kind of keep this thought as a bit of a comfort blanket. And it allows Christians to kind of ignore the circumstances of what's going on, bury their heads in the sand a little bit. Actually, I think that's really misguided. I think if we only think about eternal life as life after death, then we are missing something hugely important. And I don't think it's what John's recommending in this passage. John says that because we have this hope, that one day we'll be made perfect like Jesus, we therefore should begin living in that hope right now. He says that because we have this hope and this new perspective, we begin purifying ourselves now in preparation. What does that mean? Well, we know by our own strength, we're unable to deal with our sin. So it means that we look to the cross and we look to Jesus as the, the only one who can forgive what we've done wrong. It's like that we come before Jesus with all these labels that we may put on ourselves or that other people put on us. Insignificant shame, fear, guilt, jealousy, pride. And Jesus comes along and he removes these labels, puts them on himself and replaces them with one label which just simply says son or daughter. We often hear in sermons, if you've been around church a while, you often hear John 10.10 quoted, which is where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And for a long time, I really wondered what Jesus was talking about in this passage. To me, it always looked like the people who weren't Christians, the people who didn't come to church, were having a great time. And me and other Christians were like, not having such a great time and Christians are always known for like what they don't do but as I've grown in my own walk with Jesus I realize there is so much truth in that statement I believe that when Jesus was talking about enjoying life in all its fullness he's talking about the process of exchanging those labels for the one perfect label that he provides the one that leads to freedom freedom from guilt from shame freedom from being bound by those labels that we put on ourselves or that other people put on us. And it leads to life. You know, one day if we choose to follow Jesus, then what John is saying is that we can experience eternal life, the greatness of eternal life. But I think what we learn from this passage is that we can experience it in part now. The eternal perspective leads to a new type of living. It's one that is full of life. So, we're called to be full of love, full of life, but we're also called to be full of life, uh, full of light. You know, when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and we take on God's perspective, then it shines a perfect light into our darkness. The light shines into our lives and it tends to open up our eyes to the things we probably rather remained in the darkness. The things we're ashamed of, or that we wouldn't want anybody else to find out about us. And we begin to become aware, aware of the areas where we fall short of God's goodness, the areas where we are so in need of God's help. You know, when I was younger, I was absolutely petrified of the dark. 
I would uh, never, ever want to be the last one downstairs in my house uh, with a responsibility, massive responsibility of turning the lights off. I'd always be make sure that I'd be up in bed before that happened or if it somehow happened, I was down there, I'd like time it so I could turn the lights off and run up and get safely in bed. Um, obviously, I've grown out of that now. Um, Helen might disagree, but I don't know. Um, but although when I was younger, I was petrified of the dark, uh, on a number of occasions, I actually went sleepwalking in the middle of the night. It's strange, I know. But what's even stranger is some of the things I did when I sleptwalk. For example, on one occasion, I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, unplug the lamp that was next to my bed, move it, move the bedside cabinet. Random, I know. Uh, on another, this is a bit more strange, on another, I uh, went downstairs. I slept walked downstairs. I uh, got up onto the cooker, took the heavy rings off the cooker, took them upstairs, uh, put them on my parents' bed as like some kind of weird trophy. Um, I had a very strange childhood. I was, I was a very, very strange kid, I know. But the point is this. When it was dark, I had no idea what I'd done. It was only in the light that I was fully aware of what I had done. It showed up exactly what I'd done in the darkness. And I think it's the same when we allow God's perspective of love, of life, and of light to shine in our lives, that we see what we've been doing in the dark. In verse 6, John writes that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And he repeats it in verse 9, saying, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. You see, because God changes how we see, then we are called to change how we act. We're called to be obedient and not to continue in the habitual sins that we commit. You know, most commentators agree in this passage that John isn't writing that uh, if you choose to follow Jesus, you're never going to commit a sin again. You're going to be absolutely perfect. That is not what John is saying at all. Um, we will always fall short of God's standard of righteousness. and None of us are perfect. But instead, what John is writing and what he's, in, what he's saying is that if we continually do the habitual things which we know are destructive for us, that are unhelpful for us, then we haven't really grasped what God's perspective is all about. I wonder do we have any thoughts or actions that we just keep on going back to time and time again, but are just really unhelpful for us or actually even destructive for our own lives. If you do, then my encouragement is to, to pray firstly that God helps to understand things from his perspective. It all starts with the transformation of our minds, as Paul wrote. That has to be the first step in helping us to turn away from those habitual thoughts and actions. My second encouragement would be to consider giving the steps course. We already heard about it this morning. That's going to be starting really soon. That is designed to help people find freedom from those really unhelpful and destructive behaviours. And you see, when we do turn away and when we do find freedom in God, then we are called to live lives which reflect God's goodness. Some of those attributes I outlined earlier of God, compassion, faithfulness, gentleness, generosity, humility, mercy, these are the things in the very makeup of God, the very things we are to reflect. And John makes reference to this himself in the passage. He says that, if you know that he, he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of God. So everything that we say and everything that we do should be full of God's goodness and God's light. 
Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that you may, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we're not called to do this to make ourselves look good. When we're a child of God, we're called to, to do as he does in order to bring all the honour and the praise to our Father, the one who is ultimately perfect, loving and good beyond all measure. Perhaps the band want to come back up. As I'm uh, drawing to a close this morning, I really wanted to invite you to think about who you resemble. Would you say that you're full of God's character, full of his love, his life, his light? Or perhaps for some of us, we may wish to consider whether we've actually let that truly revolutionary message of Jesus Christ fill our hearts and minds and transform our perspective. That's the first step in really allowing the Holy Spirit to help draw us closer to God. Or perhaps you might be here today and this is the first time you've really heard about who Jesus is and some of the astonishing claims he made. If that's you then, I'd really encourage you to really consider if what Jesus said is true, how does that affect my life? You might find it helpful to chat to someone. Perhaps you came with somebody. That might be a best thing to do. Perhaps come and chat to one of the leaders here. I'm sure they'd love to do that. And we're going to go into a short time of worship in a second, but there's going to be a prayer team at the end. And if anything that I've said resonates with, that, with you in terms of being full of God's perspective and his character, then I'm sure the prayer team would love to pray with you or chat to you. Why don't we stand and we're going to worship together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.